You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Dude, what is going on with this shoe thing in the background? It's awesome. Thank you. It's my new studio wall. It's pretty banging. What's going on in the background of your situation over there, Hunter? I don't see anything real noteworthy today. It's a porn studio. I have to keep it clear back there. No, um, you know, I've moved, I've moved most of the stuff out of my house. Uh, a lot of like my Bojangles and like little things that I own because I've, I've moved into that new cabin. So everything's kind of a mess constantly. Like I was looking for my headphones so I could interview with you guys. So my electronic bin is all over the bed right now. And I guess I brought most of my electronics all the way up to um, the cabin. So I'm a little bit of a mess right now. We, we got to talk about this cabin, Hunter. We talked about it for a second on the phone like last week. But like, tell the people what you got going on, man. It's kind of dope. Well, you know, we've been doing the training camp thing for the better part of since 2013. I've been doing training camps. The first one I ever did. I'm going to go in, in chronological order and try to give you guys like a, a curve through time. Started out at Joe DeSena's place in Vermont. Next year, I moved in with Miguel into Cody Wright's house in Durango. The next year, I stayed and went to Miami, but I was filming Boundless. The next year, it was 2016, Kempson and I moved into Durango with John Yatskow. The next year, and Ryan Kent. And then the next year, I stayed in Malibu. The next year, I went to Utah for TMX. The following year, I moved to Boulder, and then I stayed in Boulder. And now this year, I just I did the math. Um, the amount of money that I've spent moving and paying for rent would have paid off. Basically, on the house that I just bought, I would have been over a third of the mortgage paid. But you wouldn't have all those memories and experiences. Don't get me wrong. I, I do not have a doubt or regret in, in any of the path that I took to get here, but um, it's pretty incredible. Like I, I live in U-Hauls and we lived on air mattresses for so long. Like my back is still probably, I don't think I hurt my back doing CrossFit. I think I hurt my back living on an air mattress <laughs> for the large majority of my twenties. So we were just talking about that Kirk and I off camera. What's that? Living in Colorado practically bankrupt me. Yeah, I paid more in rent there than I've ever paid for a mortgage in my life. I just spent more money chasing a dream that wasn't necessary. I could have literally done it right here. Rent? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You were probably staying somewhere like the Ritz Carlton because the place that Kempson and I were living in and the place uh, in Durango <laughs> and Boulder were terrible. Like. We lived across from this bar in Durango called The Tavern, and there was drunks there from like 11 a.m. until 11 p.m. every single night shouting and screaming. So our, our, our rent was cheap there, and we had, the floors were slanted. Like everything was messed up. The place that we were living in in Boulder was made of paper mache. Like I could push my hands against the wall, and it would like cave in like two to three inches in either direction. <laughs> The whole thing is a piece of crap. Um, but you over here, fancy pants with your like condo and um, 
I don't think you remember what my living situation in Colorado started with. I know the details. Um, I started out renting out of, uh, not even renting, just house surfing out of Daniel Liu's first level basement. And then I moved in with KK Paul and her boyfriend, Christian. I love those guys. Didn't you have a wife and kids at that time? I mean, yeah, the setup isn't as sketchy as it sounds. Daniel Liu had like this 4,000 square foot home and the entire first level was like a a standalone suite like you'd rent out of Airbnb and he let us just use it all summer. I can honestly say those are some of my favorite characters in the OCR scene. Think of that circle right there. Daniel Liu, Isaiah, April D, KK Paul, Christian Richenberg. Macaulay and myself all rolled into one giant paella. Yeah. Dude, I, I've called Bracken several times begging him to bring on like some of the vintage characters of OCR and just have like, you guys got to do like a season where you go through all the characters. Much what spurred it, uh, sparked it all for me was Kevin Galati. I listened to Kevin's interview with you guys and I was like, that was, I was actually very excited to listen to it because I was like, you know what? I've known Kevin for so long. I need to know the depths of Kevin. Now I really want you guys to get into like the Aprils, the KKs, the, you know, Daniel Lewis. If you guys could do that for me, I would be your number one. Don't, I'm surprised. The guy that butts head, I mean, Kevin Gelati butts heads with a lot of people. And let's say Hunter McIntyre butts heads with a lot of people. But you two have butt your heads, your fair share on social media. Uh, and you still go ahead and listen to his episode. That's pretty endearing, Hunter. I respect Kevin. There's just some things that I'll tell Kevin. I'm like, Kevin, like, I'm not going to stand for what you just said. Okay, Kevin? Like, that's that should be respect amongst uh, amongst peers. Like, I should be able to say my opinions to you, and you should be able to say your opinions to me. We're not – I didn't take – we didn't duel. We didn't kill each other. I think what really set me off about Kevin was nothing that he did face-to-face with me, but I remember I was scrolling through Instagram, and I saw a GoPro, um, GoPro post of – of uh, what's the name of that tremendous trail runner that works for uh, for Solomon? He's the best mountain runner. Julian Jornet. He was running across the spine of like the most incredibly picturesque and scary mountain you've ever seen. And Kevin's the first comment on top being like, I don't understand why you guys like this so much. It's not even that cool. Anyone could do this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, God damn it, Kevin, why are you so critical of everything? <laughs> and so that was my snap point with him. You stood up for your boy Killian. Journey. Well, you got to stick the dude. You know, everyone's had that moment where you found the perfect trail and you just feel like you're a god and you're just floating on the clouds. That was that moment. And and he is. Yeah. He's just this little pixie Spaniard who's never hurt anyone in his life. I met him once and he is far from the dreams that I've built up in my head. He's the size of a pug and his <laughs> quads are you know, probably 20 inches in diameter in each side. And he looks like he's just been beaten up by the sun and climbing up mountains too much. He literally probably was like 25 to 27 when I met him. And it was almost eight years ago. And he looked like he was in his forties, upper forties. That guy, that guy has taken it, but he lived, he lived. That's the kind of thing you need to do in that position. Still living. That guy from some of the documentaries I've seen had to like ice climb or rock climb to get to these spine back run adventures and then climb back down off of it. I would say that's pretty cool. He's incredible. 
He's this conversation started with me asking about your cabin, and then you told me about everything but your cabin. Oh, oh, we went to we went to the, the depth, depths of all of all the moving. Uh, the cabin, I gotta keep you on track, Hunter. Yeah. Well, dude, you guys, I haven't caught, caught up with you guys in a while. It's fun to just you know spitball and go wherever we want. Um, I did purchase a cabin in the mountains because of that whole me moving all the time thing. Um, it's so it goes Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, Lake Gregory. I'm at Lake Gregory, so the span of that is probably as the crow flies, probably like 25 miles, but it's about 45 minutes door to door on each. And I'm positioned at about just under 5,000 feet. Big Bear is up at 7,000 feet, and the mountains are all surrounding are you know up to 11,000 feet. So it's got some pretty good terrain. And interestingly enough, Big Bear looks like Mars. It's very dry and it's very dirt and dusty with like a couple humongous trees out there. Mine looks like almost like Oregon or like, you know, the, uh, the pack Northwest where it's just very green, extremely dense pine trees everywhere, oak trees everywhere, um, lots of rivers. So uh, it's a, just, it's a paradise. And I got this thing to like, give our last hurrah. This is almost like, you know, basically like the Americans fighting the Japanese. Like I've built like a little like stand where it's like the, the no man's land. And this is our last fight. If we fail, we turn back and we go home and we're done. If we succeed, we stay as long as we can and conquer the territory. Meaning basically I probably only have a couple more years left and I want to bring everybody in and just fight like dogs in the training camps and see how many world titles we can take uh, before we retire. Wow. I didn't expect to hear an Iwo Jima reference here, Kevin. I like that. Trust me, dude. I, will, I read way too many war history books. It um, gets me hard in the morning. The last time we talked – Speaking of that, <laughs> no, this is not a segue to that. The last time we talked, you were in the process of setting up your defensive perimeter because all your neighbors are either millionaires or meth labs. Yes. Are you are you set up now? For the most part, I've got the Rat Cannon 10,000 up there. I've got a bunch of security cameras and... I've secured all the locks and windows on the doors. So for the most part, I feel safe. And also like I've gone out of my way to make friends with like everybody in town. I'll just like stop on my bike ride. If I see somebody and ask them their name, tell them where I just moved, blah, blah, blah. So now I've got like this, I've got a pretty heavy pack. Like if I wanted to start a gang, I've got a, a, a gnarly group. Like you remember yeah. the movie, the warriors, I basically have like the toughest gang in the block now. And there's going to be people. People are going to be testing me all the time. Yes. And um, if I have to like, walk out with a switchblade, I'm going to. And I cut I cut wood with my shirt off in the front yard with a gigantic axe um, daily so that people know how tough I am. That's just smart. You know, this whole like U.S.-Japan reference could also, could also go between the um, – the uh, meth lab and, and rich people uh, scenario as well. Because if you, I mean, you used to run with the wrong crowd back in the day, Hunter. So this could go one of two ways for you as well out there. You could, get yourself, um, you could get yourself a little mixed up or you could end up in one of those palaces. How's it going to play out? He's a double agent. You got you to gotta hang out with the, mad, hang out with the madman and the millionaires to have that contrast of life, but also be able to walk down any alleyway and not have to turn your back and see who's behind you. Because they're all on your team. 
They're all on my team. Staying right. I adopted that at an early age. It's pretty fun. If there's a class war ever at uh, Upper Big Bear area, you're going to be in the middle holding both sides back. Dang right, dude. Dang right. It's it's an absolute blast. And training camp for us starts May 15th. I've already got Caleb Yates coming. Now I'm talking to a kid named Anthony Kunkel. And we've got a couple um, people in between like Kempson and stuff coming in for at least the first chunk. So 1.0 this season is going to be really great. Um, so I'm pumped about it. You're kind of breaking up there. Did you catch all that, Bracken? Nope. We're on pixelated Hunter now. Really? I refreshed my internet. Now you're okay. Everything for me is good. I just I was just saying that May 15th is the start of training camp. So we're only a couple uh, – about a week and a half away from when we really start this thing off. Yeah, you were listening to who's all coming out there. Like when you say training camp, you're talking like just a bunch of boys hanging out in the mountains, grunting and sweating and running and, and doing focused things. That's what you mean by training camp? Yeah, typically what I like to do is I backdate from a race. Like, you know, we're working on June 25th, which is High Rocks National Championships. I pick a couple core people that will be good for that task. And then we have about six I always found five weeks is like my magic number if I'm like really trying to intensify things, but we have about six weeks until that point. And, you know, hopefully we go in and just crush the record. Then I'll take a little bit of time off and then we'll start, we'll bring in all the heavy hitters for marathon running. Um, I think Kunkel will be good for that. I've got my buddy, Anthony Fagundis. I may even get to the point where I'm going to sponsor runners who are good enough to be like that 220, 220 mark to help, train me to get as close to 220 as possible and just, you know, maybe pay some runners to come out and work with me for about two months. Um, if they're really like high level pedigree, a big scholarship type thing. Um, so, you know, that's what I'm working on right now. That's, that's training camp for me. You might as well announce then what the current project is to anyone who doesn't know. So much like I did the Murph project last year, I'm doing what I'm calling the Clydesdale project now. And I Clydesdale marathoning was something that was big in the eighties and nineties. And they even have the Clydesdale marathon Clydesdale category for men is 200 pounds plus female Clydesdale. I, I don't, I'm not sure of the numbers, but I think it's 165 pounds plus. And I've done all the research that I can on it. And the best I've ever found is a 237. Um, you know, everything, these people are all saying they're at certain weights, but there's never been like a really hard version of documenting it, building up a story behind it, blah, blah, blah. There's even some guys, this guy, one guy claimed that he ran, um, you know, a 232, I think in Chicago in 2017 at 205. But I'm basically trying to build this whole thing and I'm trying to rebuild the big runner again. I want to have this, this like, you know, this almost like football player body in going after a, an elite level marathon pace. And so I called it the Clydesdale project and I'm aligning myself with a charity, a handful of sponsors, a bunch of athletes all training together. And we're going to go take down one of the majors being that of Berlin, Chicago, Tokyo, um, or, or maybe CIM. CIM would be a good course for you. I think so, but it's also the same week as Spartan Race World Championships. Uh, yep. Spartan's always screwing with everyone else's schedule, Hunter. I know. 
I know. Well, that's that's a monster goal because running in the 230s was very challenging. And doing it at 200 pounds is its own set of issues to deal with. And that's that's what I'm excited about today because you have a couple things you have to deal with, right? You've got to deal with the added pounding of being a big boy. You have to deal with the wear and tear on your body over the course of the race. You have to deal with keeping above 200 pounds while being a marathon uh, trainer. It's 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 not as simple as training for a marathon PR when you don't care about weight. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I'm having a, a big struggle, like emotionally and physically with the, with the physical um, appearance of what's going on with me right now. Like I'm intentionally eating so many calories that I don't really feel great. And I don't feel like I look really great. And I'll admit ever since I started to pick up my uh, mileage, my muscle mass is actually starting to deteriorate and my body fat mass is actually starting to increase. And I'm not doing as much weightlifting, which keeps my body kind of like, and I don't know if it's just because of the, the drop in weightlifting that my muscles are not, my, my muscle bodies are not as big as they usually are. Like my arms are starting to look smaller. My shoulders are starting to look smaller and my chest is starting to sink back a little bit, but the body fat that I've had always is now starting to really show itself. Like I don't look like a, that guy who takes a swim in the pool with a t-shirt on but I just know when I'm like shredded to the bone and I'm ready and I, I feel confident and it's, it's like an emotional thing. I'm not going to lie. I'm mm -hmm. eating around 4,500 to 6,000 calories a day, probably about five to 650 grams of carbohydrates, 250 plus grams of protein and a ton of fat wherever it comes in. And, um, it's just every single day, it's like, it's just an emotional battle. Like one day I'm like, God, you're shredded. The next day I'm like, you filthy pig of a man. <laughs> you know, that's a real, that's, that's real though, man. I think part of it is, um, I mean, you're weightlifting almost every day at certain points and now you're down to how many days a week, would you say? Three sessions. And they're not the kind of sessions that truly promote physical appearance, you know, yeah. I'm doing cluster training, which is strength endurance on Monday. Then I'm doing speed lifts on Wednesday. And then I'm doing a full body routine on Fridays. So, you know, all the reps tend to be below five and the volume seems to be so low that it's not the kind of thing that really gives you um, dense muscle mass. So it's interesting. It's a definitely, it's, it's a new world for me and it's a new appearance for me for the most part. Like I used to look like back when I Spartan raced. Well, the thing with it is though, is, is really when it comes down to like, cause you're not, because you were putting your body under heavy, heavy stressor multiple times a week. And now you're doing more like metabolic type strength training. It sounds like, like there's a true, there's a big truth to like the calories consumed when your muscles are repairing from super damaging workouts where like you're just burning more calories at rest when you're in that big boy training and that promotes leanness. And now that's decreased and, and even offsetting it with more mileage sometimes doesn't like do the trick. I've been through that phase before where like I'm smaller and softer and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. And it always has to correlate when I like chill out on the heavy lifting always. And I think it's a metal, I think it's a metabolic rate thing based on 
the fire you're stoking with all that muscle mass and all the damage and the and the the energy it takes to repair those muscles afterwards it's kind of decreased now right so i think it's a basal metabolic issue is what i think it is for everybody that well, goes through that i've said this a lot and the easiest way to describe it is the way i put it is uh metabolically dead meaning that you have muscle mass but it's not hungry muscle mass exactly weights a significant amount of weights at a regular um like you know basically regular intervals meaning like four or five times a week rather than spaced out your muscle mass is hungry it's going to burn more calories it's going to burn calories while working it's going to burn calories while afterwards and it's going to burn calories while repairing itself whereas i'm getting these sessions done and then my body is immediately just taking all the energy and it's just cycling and burning through it rather than going towards muscle repair and it's literally just putting logs on the fire. It's not a structural thing. It's just a fuel-based thing. So the, I'm, I'm literally reading, I'm reading constantly uh, to try to understand how to adjust my diet to best fix this thing. I've worked with coaches before, but this time I'm deciding to work with myself on this. Um, I'm reading a book, Power Eating. I've read it like six times by Dr. Susan Wright. That's that's probably the best book that you can find out there that has to deal with caloric consumption and uh, outputs and results based on what you want. Um, if anybody wants to read on that stuff, it's impressive stuff. What would you say your body's natural baseline is? Like, What weight does it want to settle to anytime you stop trying to be at a weight? If I sit at 200 to 205, that's pretty natural for me. Everything beyond 205 tends to be aggressive weightlifting and eating. Everything below tends to be from aggressive cardiovascular work. So it is a fight. If you naturally are 2 to 205, if you bump up to marathon volume, it is a fight to stay at that 200 mark that you need for a race day. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's tough. I probably, unless I start to manipulate my food, won't go underneath 190. But at the same time, I doubt that I'll stay far into the 200s. Um, and also right now, like that's the one thing that I'm really being conscious of. I'm working with Ryan Hall as a coach. Um, I decided to work with him because not only his results, fastest marathoner in American history, but also the fact that he is now near my weight and he understands the amount of food that's necessary to eat, the amount of impact that has on your body, so on and so forth. So he and I are really working together to have very specific mileage marks on how much mileage we build through. And like right now we're just doing some speed training and then we're going into 10K training next week, half marathon, then marathon. So everything is going to be changing as the mileage increases and we're going to really find out a lot. Like I specifically have decided to stay right now. Like I'm at 208, 209. I've decided to stay high just in case all of a sudden, if we're in mid July and we're doing 70 to 80 mile weeks and I'm dropping under 200 too soon. So, mm -hmm. uh, it's basically like, you know, the way that like bears and chipmunks like store, store a bunch of food so that they don't uh, starve throughout the winter. I'm making sure I don't starve throughout the summer as my mileage picks up.
I was so excited when you said you were training with under Ryan Hall. Yeah. Because I think that he is the only person who could truly understand what you're going through. First of all, for listeners who aren't aware of Ryan Hall, he's America's record holder in the marathon around 204.58, I want to say, at Boston. And he's our half marathon record holder at 59-something. Uh, but he's also 5'10", which is tall for a distance runner, which he understands the pounding on a frame a little bit. But then when he quit running competitively, he got into powerlifting, and now he's got to be up around 185 pounds or so. So he's the only marathoner maybe in history of our country that knows how to run fast, how to do it on a tall person's frame, and the demands of trying to gain weight and, and weight train and power train. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful combo. He and I worked together in a campaign for Dick's Sporting Goods, so we've always kind of been friends and chatted. But then as soon as this thing came up and was an idea of mine, I started calling him, reaching out to him, and now we've officially established the partnership. And um, I'll say it's, it's a, I've never run with so much intensity and consistency in my entire life. It's challenging, um, but uh, I'm excited about it. Like we're doing three quality sessions a week and it's, uh, it's sometimes pretty daunting, but I think that's the reality of it. I I'm so used to doing three to four quality sessions of weightlifting a week for high rocks and CrossFit. I just need to start to switch it back. Um, like yesterday I had to do a tempo run and we did, we did 50, uh, 50 minutes out at easy pace, like seven thirty, And then we did, 30 minutes back at half marathon pace. I just wanted to stay under six minute pace, which I did the whole time. And then I did 15 minutes of easy running at the end. And for me, from the belly button up, I felt like I was doing an easy run. From the belly button down, I was devastated. Like my hamstrings, everything just feels like I'm running like a baby giraffe. Like it's just, when you start to add that intensity and speed again, it's so hard to stay consistent. It's almost like when I was Olympic lifting and doing CrossFit, the snatch is something that has to do with, with consistency and just time under tension in that muscle pattern. I sucked at snatching for the first two years. Now I can do it with my eyes closed. So I'll get back to that. And that's where I'm really aiming to be. Well, in a 95 minute long run with quality in the, in the later stag stages, that's, that's a demanding workout on on anyone, let alone 208. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like I do, we did the other day, we did 2400s and with 60 seconds rest in between. And I've never done that many 400s in my life. I'm like a 10 to 14 kind of guy. And it actually was really easy. And we were up at 6,000 feet at a track and we were holding anywhere from 85 seconds down to below 75 seconds. And it wasn't hard at all, but then we took the same amount of volume when we put it all together down at sea level. And I was like, Whoa, I was done. So it is going to be a very interesting, um, position to start to work into that tempo threshold period. Mm -hmm. I want to dive into those specifics, but I have one just side question now that I'm hearing you talk. Uh, you worried about how this is going to affect high rocks coming up in June. Like where are you where are you at with that? Because you, it sounds like you've made a 180 with your training, and you're the you're the king, right? So is how's the king feeling about that? I mean, listen, I'll be totally honest. This is not ideal 
for high rocks. It's not ideal. It's not terrible. It's just not ideal. Um, I'm not the best runner at the high rocks right now. Megita beat my running time. He Megita lost to me by over five minutes, but he beat my running time by a minute and 27 seconds, which is interesting. Even Rebecca Hammond beat my running time. So there's people beating my running times, but I also beat Megita's station times by over seven minutes. So the thing is, is like, I'm still so good at those stations and so strong. Like the other day, um, my buddy was over the house. I'm back squatting 325 for reps. No questions asked. No one's doing that in the game right now. I'm bench pressing 275 for reps. No questions asked. So my strength endurance, my strength is there. My endurance is increasing because of what we're doing. I'm not doing the metcons that are really metabolic conditioning. That's really important to like just keeping your muscles prime for doing a hundred wall balls while tired. But in reality, I think about it like this. If I take a minute to a minute and a half off of my uh, 8K in Chicago because of all the running I've been doing, but I lose a minute to two minutes off of my stations, I'm still beating everybody by over two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy with that answer. That makes sense to me. And you've, and you've, the thing is, is you've trained so intensely and with purpose for high rocks and some of the shorter stuff like TMX, your body just doesn't forget that. Like if you wanted to sneak in a couple of those workouts in the weeks leading up, you're going to get 95% of the way there, you know, to your true potential because you've put that time in already. So you can get away with less. You know yeah. what I'm saying? For sure. And I'm hoping that everybody's capabilities of doing that event increases and that I'm hope and I'm hoping that me chasing my other goals right now, it decreases my ability a little bit. So it brings everything together. And for some reason that fear is going to get set back in me and I'm going to do better than I've ever done before. I set the world record after Ryan Kent came in and ran a 59 in New York. And then everybody's like, Ryan Kent's the new best guy on the block. I ran Miami it's six minutes flat, 60 minutes. And then um, Kent beat my time. Everyone thought Kent was better than me. And I was like, F that. Kent's never going to freaking beat me. And then I set the record. Um, so I want people to get closer because like, uh, this is a little bit of a tangent. But this summer, I was in such bad endurance shape. I was just doing a lot of bodybuilding. And I did – or this fall. And I did OCR stars. And I ran a six mile at five minutes and 20 second pace for all six miles. I was not pre prepared for that, but this kid was running alongside of me and he was going to beat me. And I surged and I ran an incredible pace in training right now. I I'm in better running shape. I can barely hit that. So sometimes it takes somebody coming next to you to make you want to take yourself to the utmost, like just empty out the tank. And that's where you get the best results. So my tangent has been covered. Across your career, you've performed the best when someone goes out and pushes you from the start. Yeah. Because they're, they're the people that will shy away from that and then the people that mash the gas down in in reaction to that. And you've always been a, a person who will react to someone else's aggression. So I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I'm pumped about it. The million dollar question I have for you is you seem to be a guy that gets focused on something and then you kind of go all in, right? You don't really half-ass much that you do. I would say you're a bad half-asser. You're a great full-asser. No, full-ass everything, right? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I, uh, I've seen you stand on your your patio naked in the morning, just letting yourself air out. So I, I know what it looks like. But um, why the marathon? Why is this your new fixation? Like of all the things, you could come back and try to show all of us Spartan idiots that you're still the best. You could go do a number of things, and you choose the marathon. Why? Why the marathon? I don't know, dude. There's a couple of things that are just out there that are there. It's like everybody in the running career wants to run a fast mile. And the one thing I just have never touched is that marathon. And like if you and I went out and talked to like some some runner and they had no clue what we what, I'm like, hey, yeah, I'm a runner. They're like, oh, so cool, dude. Like you ever run a marathon? What's your marathon time? No one asks you what's your beast time or sprint time. I hate that question. Do you hate that question? Oh, have you ever done a marathon? And then you tell them no. And then they're like, oh, well, my my fat grandma did a marathon. So exactly. like, you, you must not even be close to an athlete. Oh, that question drives me nuts. Continue. But that's it, dude. Like, so a couple of years ago, I was dating this chick and her dad had done like 30 or 40 marathons and I had never done one. And I'm a professional runner at the time and I'm getting paid well to go and run. And he's like, so you never run a marathon? And I was like, nah, it's not really my thing. And he's like, oh, okay. And I was like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> like, so for me, it's just, it's something that needs to be done before I'm done. And I also think that I'm recognizing I, I, in my life that there's, I have something to prove like the CrossFit games. I only went to the CrossFit games because they say that they're the fittest. And I wanted to take them down and let them know that that's not true. And the marathon is one of these kind of things where it's like, man, we're the best endurance runners. Like the marathon is that kind of thing where if you're a champion level marathoner, like, dude, come on. Everybody in the world knows who Kipchoge is if you've had a pair of shoes on and you know anything about running. You know what I mean? Like it's just iconic. It's like it's something that's so big. And I want to be involved in that. And I also kind of want to set a precedence and also set like a, a bar for what this new, um, this new era of big running, big runners can be. So I'm never going to be the guy I've always been fighting against gravity and weight for my whole career. And I'm just going to finally embrace it and just go destroy what people's attitudes and mindset is about what it takes to be a, a fast marathoner. I'm not like Kipchoge weighs 115 pounds. I weigh 215 pounds practically. So it'll be an impressive story when it's done. There's got to be some element to legacy to it for you where like, yeah, they say CrossFit is the fittest on earth and it's not, but no one can disprove them. But if you can have a, a CrossFit games appearance and then a marathon and a Spartan race short course world championship and a podium at regular distance Spartan championships and then something in the middle. If you touch enough areas at some point, you can look back and say, my legacy is the greatest overall fittest and end of the spectrum athlete on the planet. You know, you guys remember Jim Thorpe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to die as a modern day Jim Thorpe. I would love nothing more than to have this just level of accolades up on my wall that shows something special. My grandfather just passed away and that man did more in a lifetime than I think any 10 men I know that I respect have done. Before we get into anything deeper, maybe this is getting into the deeper. Uh, there are basically two schools of marathon training thought. 
And I'm excited to get to know Ryan Hall's mind through your mouth. But there's there's two schools of thought. One is that you build this giant base and then you cut down to the marathon distance and do over speed as you get closer. And the other is that you start with speed work, 3K, mile, 5K, whatever you want to do. And then you branch up to 10K pace and then you extend your, your distance and approach race pace as race day approaches. And it sounds like he has you starting with the tip of the pyramid and then expanding out. So talk to me about how you guys decided upon that. I mean, I didn't decide upon anything. I am being a total student of this, of this work. I always hire the best coaches in the industry and I just listen to them. I listen. And if we get it done for the most part, we usually do. Um, you know, I'm excited and I learn something. So I try to really learn and listen rather than pay somebody to argue with me or argue against them. So at this point, um, obviously we're doing a significant amount of speed work and then we're going into the 10 K we're building up exactly the way that you said. And for me, um, it's pretty nerve wracking. Like it's a nervous feeling. I'm actually starting to really feel like I'm catching my stride at the fourth week of training because I already can tell, like we're going to get where we need to be. I just need to do my end of getting the training done and keeping my diet in line and, Hopefully Ryan and I are going to link up and work face to face, but truth be told, I'm not asking a lot of questions. Um, when he presented it and said that this is what we we're going to do, I was like, done. And um, I think like, I'd love to introduce you guys to Ryan, have him come on here and really be able to explain his mindset because there's clearly a very smart man behind all of it. I think the thing that impressed me the most is that transition that he made from that level runner to the size that he is now in level strength. Most people, I would say that person probably took performance enhancers or anything, but you can tell someone who's that dedicated to one craft can completely transform their body to being dedicated to this craft. And when I saw that, I was like, he's the man I will follow into battle. Like I'll follow this guy. He's dedicated and he would not give me anything less than his best because that's what he does for himself. Well, it makes sense in theory, right? Like let's get you efficient and let's get your run economy up and let's get you working well and fast and comfortable. And then let's expand like your fitness, like, you know, potential from there. So get you run economy, get your turnover, get your mojo back and then build upon that and just extend that out. I mean, in theory, it makes perfect sense. I can see, especially in your situation, it would make even more sense than logging a bunch of slow, heavy, like miles that, are just stressing the body, but not increasing fitness nearly as quickly. So to me, that makes sense. And I think the most important thing is these tempo runs. Like that session I did yesterday is, is gotta be the, the, the most important part of the week. And I have good training partners alongside of me and the speed, like, yes, I understand you need to prime the legs. Uh, but I think the junk miles are not as important. The speed is not as important, but I'm realizing like the biggest impact is that session I did yesterday. So um, all, all of it coming together is crucial, but I can tell you as of what I've witnessed right now, it's those tempo runs and he's really, you can tell how he's manipulating it all the time by either increasing duration of intensity or increasing intensity alone just in the moment. And I'm not giving away all the secret sauce with that, but um, sometimes we preach re repeatable workouts, right? So it's a very methodical, like, oh, I'm doing the same thing I did last week, but maybe a slight tweak. And a lot of athletes have a hard time with that. It bores them, right? 
Is that sort of the formula you've noticed so far? I mean, I'll just tell you, like week one, we did 16 times 200 with 60 seconds rest between. Then all of a sudden we were doing 16 times 200 with um, 60 seconds running between. And then we were at the point where we were doing, what was the last speed session we did? I actually skipped that one um, because this week I'm supposed to do a 5K time trial. But do you understand what I'm saying? You're doing this still the same set amount of work, but now you're you're exchanging full rest for partial rest with running for probably the next week we're going to do less rest and um, less rest. And then the next week we'll probably do less rest with running in between. So you just keep on trying to find ways to take the same level of intensity and cut back on your heart's version of being able to fully recover and get your body used to that stimulus. So it's not really like, I don't get bored of it. I just had one, a client quit my training program. He wrote me, he said, man, I was like, why did you quit? Just for my own understanding of what, uh, how I can better serve clients. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, I, I'm, I thought this would be a better running program. It just seems like everything's so consistent. And like, I think I could just do that on my own. And I was like, I'm not going to lie. Like you can't hop, skip and jump all over the place and expect to get good at running. Like we need to train like three aspects of running and then either add duration to it or intensity to it. That's how running or anything works at getting fitter. I think a lot of people like want to do the David Goggins thing where they like want to like, they're like, I want to get good at pushups. So they do pushups. So like, this is not hard enough. I'm going to do pushups in the waves. This is not hard enough. I'm going to put sand in my eyes, do pushups in the waves and then kick myself in the nutsack at the same time. Like people want to feel like their world's on fire. So that's how they're getting fitter. Um, but I think they look too much into the internet rather than do any research. Like most people get their training, um, their training ideas from the internet instead of someone like myself and probably you guys, you get your training ideas from really well studied books. And I think most of the world who's listening to this right now probably does not want to hear this, but everything you see on the internet is a microscopic scope of what that person's done to get there. Like when you see somebody doing like super cool kettlebell flow and they have like 4% body fat and they're 235 pounds, you don't know that that person was a power lifter for eight years before that taking steroids and is on like a ketogenic diet that only allows like, you know, 1500 calories of pure fat and uh, protein. And you're like, gosh, I'm going to start doing kettlebells upside down while doing Wim Hof breathing and I will be as shredded as you. It's not the case, guys. No, that's great. Pete, every time you come on here, like there's agendas, but it's these in between answer nuggets you drop that is the biggest takeaway, I think. It's that uh, you you have as much variety in your training as anyone that I know at a high level, but because you have multiple events you train for. But in your specific training, you do very sequential based training and you repeat a lot of workouts. It was. It surprised me the first time. You remember back when I was doing the leaderboard thing? Yeah. We partnered with for the bicep win races program, and you wrote it up. Yes. And people were like, "I can't wait to do the bulk ponies program. We're going to be doing all these epic workouts." And week one, the interval was one minute hard, one minute easy. Week two was two minute hard, one minute easy. Week three was three minute hard, one minute easy. And people are like, "He's just like doing the same workout every single week and adding one minute." 
Like, yeah. And he took third at Spartan Worlds last year because like, that's that's how you get better at work. Like, yeah, but what are we going to start throwing crazy weight around? Like, I don't know when in five years when you've done all the base work for it and now you've you've earned the right to do some crazy wild stuff. Yeah, dude, I was listening to your guys thing with that. That chiropractor was the powerlifting champion. And I was like, I feel like the whole world is like never heard these words before, even though it's been said so many times. Like when he was just talking about the static holds, you know how many people messaged me and they're like, you're such a pussy dude. Like, what's the point of holding that weight and not squatting it? Like, why are you wasting your time? Like, quit trying to show off. You suck. I'm like, what are you guys so hyped up about? I was like, you don't even know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> like, if I met you in the street, I could tear you in half like, like a piece of paper. Like, that's the kind of strength that I'm deciding to build. And what you guys think is most important is like, you know, lifting and squatting all the time where sometimes you just need to fucking brace under extremely heavy weight and your body will absorb that strength and be able to use it. Whereas most people, their training programs are just, I don't know, man, it's just a bunch of white noise rather than actual like hardcore good work. Yeah. And that's, that was, we brought you up on that episode to say like, that was the example. Like Hunter does this and people ripped him apart. Like, oh, what's that? A quarter squat? Good depth. It's like, no, <laughs> Hunter's showing the pieces that are in between the training. It's just that no one else records themselves unless they're hitting a PR on some epic lift. Whereas you're showing the piece that makes the athlete. They didn't even know how to like comprehend the scope of the workout you were showing. And it highlights why the internet it might as well have been a different language representing that information. Yeah. But yeah, so you know, it's interesting. You were talking about static holds and the importance of just bracing and people don't get it. Well, I feel like you've done the running version of that and it's going to pay off so big for this mar of all distances and of all challenges, the Clydesdale marathon for you, all that basically your static hold work that you've done with Richard Diaz and that you've focused on over the years of really bulletproofing your stride. I think this is the one event that will highlight that more than anything, because you talked about how right now you feel like you're getting the most out of the tempo. Well, most 208 pound people, I don't care how much they've run, could not get 30 minutes of quality tempo in because their form would degrade so much after the first 10 or 15 minutes of pounding and you maybe more than anyone I know have worked on your form, never, ever changing, no matter how tired you are. If you watch you in high rocks coming off a sled or in Killington coming off a climb, you click back into the same, I say mechanical in a good way, mechanical stride that you and Rich drilled in the lab for years. And I think that that right there is like the proof of the ancillary work is going to be shown right because of that. Yeah, I, I think about Rich about 10 times a day, and he probably doesn't know this, but he's probably been my greatest asset ever to my success as a runner, and I have to go back and see him. Sometimes I'll spend like a month or two with him, and then I'll miss him for a month, but um, yes, like I think the efficiency patterning uh, for something, especially through the marathon, is probably the furthest distance for most people that they can take at a race pace. I'm not um, Jim Wamsley who could probably race the same pace for a hundred miles, but somebody who's a really high level runner can truly run just a little bit slower than 5k pace for freaking two hours, which is insane. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's that, it's that run. Why I think it's so cool. It's you're threading a needle too fast. You break down too slow. You miss your mark. And it's, 
It's so easy where even like maybe two to three seconds faster over pace, if you do that for five miles straight, you're done. You're all of a sudden, your heart rate is just too taxing on the system. And just having something like just a microscopic overstride can all of a sudden be tens of thousands of reps going up into your hips, tearing apart your body, or just elevating your heart rate at a rate that doesn't need to be. Like yesterday, my right leg was starting to strike more than my left leg, and I could feel it coming up, almost just like someone just plucking a string, just like one, two, three, and I could feel it. It was just that microscopic, and I started to switch it over to my left side, and all of a sudden, my prices dropped again. I was like, damn. And you know who taught me that? Rich. I was calling all, my hamstring and my hips and my ankle were so bad. And I talked to all these physical therapists and they were telling me things to do. Then all of a sudden I go work with Rich. He goes, put a little more pressure on your left foot. Two weeks later, gone. And most people want to basically work with band-aids or foam rolling and stuff where if you could just understand positioning and alignment and cadence all of a sudden, what you're doing every single day, it'd just be like me rubbing my hand like this and I'm doing it more and more and more and more and more and more and more. At first, it's just a tickle. By the end of the day, it will be a bloody, you know, cut up spot because I've just plucked it too many times. That's what's happening when you're um, running with just the most microscopic um, poor alignments in your system. The thing, I mean, I've raced against you since 2013. And your mind game is on a different planet than a lot of people. And your physical abilities that you were blessed with are on a different planet than a lot of people. But the thing that always impresses me the most is how at the worst stage of any race, and I think back to the most painful things I've ever done, and they are Killington, they are the second half of a stadium race, and they are high rocks. Those are the most depleted yeah. I've ever been. It doesn't matter. I've run ultras. I've run a mile. I've run 5Ks, like those can get intense, but there's no more depletion than those three things. And in all three of those stages, you look the same coming off an obstacle or a climb or a descent that you did in the first 100 meters off the line. Like you have one stride and you stick to it. Even in that uh, Spartan games, when you were really big and you were not the type of fast runner that you'd prefer to be, you still came off things looking the same. It was just all front back motion, front back motion. And I thought if I could go back to 2013, when I first started competing against you, the one thing I would change is my attention to mechanical breakdown in my stride, because suddenly we're here 10 years later, nine years later, and you've perfected it for nine years. And I think I've just been lackadaisical about it for nine years. And that's the one piece that I am just blown away by. I've never seen anyone else be able to avoid stride breakdown like that. Treadmill, number one tool you could use. Motorized treadmill, by the way, with a metronome attached to it. And if you were going to do a workout like Helen, 400 meter run, 12, uh, 21 kettlebell swings, 12 pull-ups, and set it for like a – it's better to set that same movement pattern over like 10 to 15 minutes so you have multiple stimulus periods rather than just three. Um, you'd want about five. Let's just say set the treadmill at, I would want to be at 520. 
you set that thing with a metronome and the first time you do it, maybe do it at 540. Then the next time you do it, if you did okay, do it at 530. And the next time you do it, do it at 520. And you're going to find your break point. Um, my point is, is I just did the math and I found out that if I could minimize my transition time, I would cut out minutes after every single obstacle. And it was a game changer. The big, once I lost to Ryan Atkins at the obstacle in 2017, Monterey, I changed everything again at a higher level to understand how to transition in and out. So I think there was just a couple pinnacle points in my entire career where it made me want to change. I think if I'm going to come back in the Spartan race this year, which I've discussed with you guys many times, and I think just because of calendar mess ups and some bad investments of um, my mindset up to this point, I missed out the beginning of the season and I'm hoping to come in at the end of the season. And if I do train anything to, to get back into shape, it's not going to be running. It's just going to be obstacles, obstacles, obstacles. Ian Hosick was on the Reinforced Running Podcast talking about form improvement. And and, Ian, and I don't know how much of an expert you are, but I know you've worked with Rich a lot on this. Uh, Ian, Ian says that the 180 strides per minute is bullshit and that it's just some arbitrary thing that was plucked from like a world-class 10K and the average best performers, you know, we're, we're running this cadence. So that's what we decided was the best, but it doesn't address height or leg length or body mass. Um, and so... Is there a real argument to be made there? Do you think like, because I blanket statement it as well, say hop on the treadmill, get your cadence to 180 and at least like start there. It's the simplest way to start. Do you think there's holes that can be poked in that argument you just made or, or is Ian just talking shit to talk shit? I mean, there's definitely going to be outliers. It's just like almost like the Phil Maffetone thing where the heart rate thing, like get to 220 minus your age, blah, blah, blah. It's a blanket statement mm -hmm. trying to help people get better. And it, for the most part, is an average answer to your problems. And there's always going to be things that are mechanically different for everybody. Like, you know, some people have like a microscopic shift in their hips. So they're different heights and blah, blah, blah. And people have different femur lengths and blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, I'm assuming with the things that they brought up that it's pretty even across the board. Just like in strength training, if you move a bar at 0.8 meters per second while lifting, that's the best way to acquire strength. If you can move weight progressively over time at that pace, that will add strength and speed. So even that's questionable, but it's from science and what they've done with weightlifting, the most important thing that they found. And I use that now. In the metronome, I use that still. Can I say that it's perfect for everybody? No. Can I say that you should probably start there and then do more research? Yes. Well, I get I get a lot of questions about working with Rich Diaz. People want to know, and I have, everybody wants a gait analysis, and Rich comes up, and I just know that you've worked with him uh, more than anybody, and you respect him a ton, obviously, saying he's the most influential person on your running. So I, I was curious if he had a firm stance. I'll tell you this much. If he wasn't good, I wouldn't waste an hour to drive up to see him and then drive back. You know? Yeah. You know, I'm one of those people that I don't believe 180 is a magic number. I think it's a range. It's a dead center point and people are going to be on either side. So I, I guess you could call me a bit of a skeptic, but at the end of the day, it makes sense under the parameters of logic, which is if your cadence is slower, there are only two possible ways to have slower cadence. The first is to have slower, longer ground contact time. 
which is a death sentence to speed. And the second is to have a longer stride, which is a death sentence to stamina. The only reason people's strides break apart at the end of races is if they fatigue and they can no longer maintain that stride. And the quickest way to ensure you can't maintain your stride is to be over striding. And so what a higher cadence forces people to do is get their feet off the ground faster and not over stride. And so even if I don't believe 180 is perfect, let's say it's 175 or 182, like, it doesn't matter. If you shoot for 180, you are going to fix the two worst problems people have, which is ground contact time and overstriding. So I don't even think there's an argument there. Like you could nitpick, is it 180 or is it 178? I don't care. It's faster is going to be better because it fixes the two biggest problems that everybody suffers with out of the gate. Nailed it. I also think that there's a lot of people out there that just want to have their heyday and say something so that they feel significant in sharing information. In reality, there's not been many breakthroughs in the science of training in the past 50 to 60 years. Just hasn't. You're not seeing anybody come out with new mechanical information. The diets haven't changed. The mechanics haven't changed. The stimulus to any of those things haven't changed. So I think all these people want to be gurus um, or informative pieces in their environment. And I just don't think it's the case. Anybody who's talking fringe stuff, you should question. Yeah. If there's a new system, that's a cash grab for the most part until you can prove it with numbers. There has been no greater study of the human body and the physical limits than what Russia and the Eastern Bloc countries did you know, prior to the Cold War. They had more athletes to throw studies at than any other plant, uh, other country in the history of the planet, and they did it, and they forced people into the studies. They they had millions and millions of test subjects, and we're still catching up. What do you got there? Soviet training and recovery methods with the hammer and sickle on the cover. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I you always do have to take everything that the Russians say and the Chinese and Bulgarians say with a grain of salt because during a lot of these tests they were doing so many performance enhancers that I also think they're not stupid. They probably were studying test subjects that weren't on performance enhancers. Cause that'd be just blindly stupid um, to only test people, but they're willing to cheat. So they're willing to get the ant, the best answers. If you're going to cheat, you find out better might as well find out how to cheat at the best level. So they get the best results. And I'm not going to defend cheating and doping, but what does it allow you to do? It allows you to do every single thing in training that you would do in a perfect world. So it's not like they come up with these fake protocols that don't work for normal people. They just do more of it and more frequently. So if it worked for them, a watered down version of that works for normal people. I wasn't trying to open a box there. I was just trying to be funny, but um, I guess there's something there. I... I... <laughs> I think it justifies it. Honestly, I, I, I cannot ever get behind doping in sports, but the greatest training plans to look at are the ones designed by that Michael, Michaeli Ferrari or Mikhail Ferrari, you know, Lance Armstrong's doping doctor and Alberto Salazar and all these people that were caught doping. They also had the greatest training protocols possible because they didn't have to worry about recovery. They just treated people like machines and said, this is what you would do for someone if you didn't have to worry about injury and recovery. And that means that is the purest training 
ideal you could possibly ever pull from. My last college paper was writing about performance enhancers in sports. And if it wasn't for my teacher, I would have said that performance enhancers should be used in sports because the studies go to show that the black market bodies are always have more funding and more opportunity than the governing bodies. So the black market bodies always are two or three steps ahead of the governing bodies as far as the new science leading to people's performance. So what you and I may understand right now, one of the biggest things that are going on in the world is peptides right now. And peptides are harder to recover, like to research and get information on because there's so many different molecular blah, blah, blahs to them compared to traditional hormone-based stuff. The scientists that are developing that stuff are so much better than the scientists that are trying to test it. And it's just an impossible game to chase. The people who want to cheat have the funding to cheat and they're going to do it better than the people that are trying to stop them. And that's why I continue to buy all these books. And I always read like, that's where I first learned about training was learning about performance enhancing in that class. And I got so much knowledge from that period right there. I was like, wow, I'm going to stop hanging out at planet fitness and I'm just going to continue to read. How do you, you're, you seem like a guy, like if you reached within like a five foot radius of yourself, I can see books behind you. You could probably grab a dozen different books without getting out of your chair, just laying all over the place. Well, how do you pick what book to read next? Because you always have something you're flashing for us. Like, oh, here's this next thing. I'm kind of curious about that. How do you decide? I mean, it's whatever I'm excited about. Whatever gets me up in the morning and I start thinking about it, I buy a book on it. And I don't finish most of them because in reality, it's like I, I have this theory that most books should only be 100 pages long. They get their point out and done within the first 100 pages, and then they keep on repeating themselves for the next 200. 80-20 running needed one page. 80-20 running could have been one paragraph and said it was 200 pages. So I agree with that. I have two questions I really want to – I want to dive into with your training before we get too distracted with other fun topics. And that is one, if we're talking 80-20 running or we're talking heart rate training and we're talking you're being coached under one of the best or the best American marathoner we've ever had, are we paying attention to heart rate and is that heavily infused into your marathon training per his prescription? He hasn't mentioned it once, so I'm not bothering with it. Is it all pace-based? Yeah. And it's smart. In some kind of ways, if you want to run a two, I want to rub, my goal is sub six minutes. I would love to get to 230, but sub six minutes, like I think if I do that, that's insane. Let's break that down. Six minute pace is 237 for the marathon. And if you want to run 230, that's 544 pace. I just did the math because I'm thinking of running one myself. So yeah. That's, that's what you're looking at. Exactly. I, my goal is this, like I'm going to have my original goal and then I have my breakthrough goal, which is the 230 mark. Um, so basically I think it's pretty smart. Like we're working off of paces and then we're going from there. I think it's either I'm capable of them or I'm not. It doesn't matter where the heart rate's at. I think most people until they're highly trained enough need to be conscious of their heart rate because often people run way too hard just in their easy work. And that's probably the most conscious thing, but I'm pretty sure when I'm running in these like seven to eight minute paces, I'm at about a hundred and I've, I've worked with rich so much. Like I can hold a six forty at 136 beats per minute for like an hour. And that's nothing for me. That's, that's like 65%, 70, 67. 
You know what I've noticed with that though, because I become, so I become a slave to my heart rate monitor on only recovery days. And on hard days, I basically don't even look at it until I'm done, right? I just want to see what the, the workout did to me. And then the one thing it's done for me on the recovery days is I think I know my body, but then I build up all this fatigue. And I notice at 7.30 pace, my heart rate's five beats a minute higher than it was last week. And that means I just need to chill even more to make sure I'm getting recovered. Um, that's the only way I, th I think that's the biggest benefit you can have. And maybe, you know, your body better than me. You probably do, but, um, it's kept me in check and slowed me down when I thought I was doing what I was supposed to, to recover that day. And I've been like, well, looks like my heart's beating a little faster. And I thought, just thought it was an interesting note, but you're correct about the, the, the benefit on the recovery days more than anything. I agree with that hundred percent. What I was saying is I'm not afraid of the eight to 10 minute mile. Like I've recognized now that the most important thing in my experience for running right now is the hard efforts. So today I'm going to go out there and if I have to power hike some of the hills, I'm going to do it. But then tomorrow or Saturday when I have my quality session, if I have enough carbs and my legs are recovered enough, I should be able to hit that 5k um, tempo run at about a 508 to a 515 pace. And like, that's it. That's my goal right then and there. Like, that's all I care about. And, you know, some people will be like, well, what the heck are you doing running so slow? I'm just getting my body comfortable at moving through time and space and working my cardiovascular system in just the most microscopic way and then priming myself for the really, really hard work. So I think the heart rate monitor thing is smart to have to make sure you're 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 doing that on your own. And if you're confident enough to know my body like I do, I just walk when I need to, jog when I need to, run when I need to. But I I've I'm I'm similar to the idea that you have, Kirk. Makes sense. My other question was going to be uh, what your goal time was and and what you really think is realistic for you to, to achieve. Cause we talked on the phone, I think it was last week and you said you threw a two thirty, And then I said, you know what, Hunter, like, I think there's a chance I could flirt with the two thirty mark if I get myself ready to go. And, and I've been kind of thinking about the marathon myself. And I don't know if you pay attention to what I'm doing on Strava, but some of these workouts aren't quite looking like OCR workouts these days. Cause I'm getting a little fired up about maybe some long distance road running. So it's been top of mind for me as well. And I started doing the math and figuring out where I could, my ceiling could be. And so I know you talked through it a little bit, but what's like a B and C goal here. And I also want to know, you're talking about all these guys doing this, but nothing's been monitored correctly. Are we going to have like a Guinness book of world record situation? Are we going to do this? So like nobody can look back and say, Oh, whatever Hunter, he weighed in, but he cut in the last week. He doesn't look 200 pounds. Duh, duh, duh. Like how are we going to do all this? So goals, What's realistic? And then what, how are we going to make sure this is legit? Without fail, I'm going to go for the sub six minute. Like I, I think without, I think almost right now, if I showed up to do a marathon, I'd probably run about a 6.10 to 6.15 pace with just slightly more work. Because last time I ran a 6.38 with no training whatsoever, and I've already mildly brought everything up, and I feel really confident about the way I'm feeling. So getting that last 15 seconds off, let's say I'm on the higher side of things, I think it'd be pretty go gosh darn easy to do that within the next four months. I, I, I know myself as a runner, it should be done. Going for that 544 is basically going to be, yeah, if I was 190 pounds, I wouldn't have a doubt in my mind that I could do a, um, a sub one, uh, you know, a sub 230. 
It's just about the weight. No one's ever done anything like this before, at least from what I can tell. And I'm trying to do it from a body that's actually primed for strength rather than endurance. So I'm having to really work on making my muscle fibers fibers more porous and oxidative than, than muscle tension based. So there has to be a transformation. There has to be an equation of food and there has to be an equation of training. It's a symphony of, of, of majesty. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 237, I guess is what you were saying. And 230, 30 would be the ultimate goal. B would be like a 235. I think saying you ran a 235 marathon is pretty cool. I don't think saying a 237 is that cool, you know? And then are you going to weigh in on race day? The way that I'm doing it now, I'm, I'm having to really change my emotional um, uh, take on this thing. I just got rejected again by Guinness Book of World Records. And I'm going to either go ask. You got, you got rejected for this specific attempt. They just think it's not worthy of a record. Let me just tell you about the Guinness Book of World Records right now. The Guinness Book of World Records has a marathon for people running in a suit, the fastest one, half marathon for the fastest person running a half marathon in a clown suit, a marathon for the fast person running dressed up as a celebrity, the marathon for Kipchoge. There's so many marathon records. In Juggling, running backwards, walking on your hands, mm-hmm. all of those things. But these are, I'm talking about specifically for the marathon distance. Yeah, they have all of those for marathon, marathon juggling, marathon running backwards, marathon walking on your hands. They all recognize that. And I'm I am trying to be patient about it, but I'm going to start a whole nother campaign to just go after and specifically attack Guinness Book of World Records on this thing. Because they've, they've slighted me twice and I'm just disappointed in them as a company because it just seems like their their records are just so ridiculous. There's no rhyme or reason to why they decide to record one and not the other. Well, and how many people can relate to handstand walking a marathon and how many can relate to being a 200 pounder attempting to run a marathon? It's relatable. It's tangible. It's scalable. Changing your outfit changes the the marathon record. Clown suit versus celebrity suit. There is one for 100 meter dash wearing scuba flippers. I know. Maybe, maybe you could. Maybe if that doesn't work, you could be like fastest marathon with a mustache and a mullet, something like that. Maybe they'll take that. Trust me, man. I'm 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 angry. Uh, but what I'm planning on doing is working with. We're basically recording everything on our end. The way that I plan on weighing in that day is in the nude, showing people that there's no bonus weight on shoes, shorts, shirts, anything. So I'm going to weigh in the nude just like you would at like a UFC fight. You get up there, you weigh in, you show your weights, and then you go. I'm probably leading up to this thing going to be 195 dry and about 201 to 202 full. And if you guys should know what that means, if you're if you're like a strength training athlete or you know even for endurance, dry means you're dehydrated and you haven't carved up a lot. And you know those days when you wake up after drinking the night before and your your body's really dry and you look really ripped? You guys ever experienced that? Every day. Every day. <laughs> um, and then if you go back to like eating and drinking and everything like that, your body kind of inflates and absorbs all the water. So there's definitely going to be a swing and I have to nail it just properly. Right now, I'm waking up at like 206 uh, dry and about 29, 210. Um, full. So 
Uh, basically, my goal is to show up, weigh in, show everything the days before, weigh in several times the day before, day of the race, wake up, um, weigh in over 200 pounds, record everything, show the date like you do on a piece of paper, like in a, like a body challenge. Or kidnapping. Yeah. And then I'm going to go for it. Obviously, anybody who – like some people have been like, aren't you going to be underweight by the time you finish? I'm like, yes, I'll be dehydrated and I'll have sweat the majority of it out. But that's – as soon as I drink a couple of gallons of – like a gallon of water again, I'll be right back where I started. My true body weight consistently will be over 200 pounds before, after, and then, you know, days beyond. I know you don't run a lot of like typical race, like road race is and like PR wise, but I'm actually curious so the listeners know, and I don't know this either. What are your bests on like duplicatable distances for times? Like what is your best mile ever recorded? Your 5k, 10, anything you've run. Do you have anything that you've like, uh, just for perspective? I mean, dude, truth be told, nothing within the past, like the fastest ever was a 330110 k and what is that 520 pace i don't know ish right roughly and 1630 back to back yeah and i banded that one so 520 pace yeah 515 maybe yeah like i banded that one miguel and i both ran it in um 2013 and we didn't have enough money to pay for the race so we just ran up and ran the thing and did it um, so I don't even have that on record. I haven't done a 5k in, I think the fastest 5k I ever did was in the middle of the 8k firecracker run. And that was high 15s. The fastest 5k I've ever run in the middle of a trail race was a 1454. And it was a 13.6 mile trail race with two miles down one on flat. And that was incredible for me. That was the fastest I've ever run. And that was against Kent in 2017. So was that that exterior race? Yeah, that was that was probably the best race I've ever run in my life. So yeah, we we don't do a lot of traditional things, and my best marathons are 255. All right, I wanted to have some perspective. This is this really is not uncharted territory for you, but this one you have a lot more big performances to show on the trails and in the OCR world than you do on the road. So this is a, a serious undertaking. It is. And we'll be doing, we'll be doing road races leading up to it. Like I would love to do a 5k soon. I would love to do, um, I would love to do a half marathon, a 10k soon. I think I'm going to host some races at my new training camp and just get people out there and invite a bunch of runners out to come race. Because if I just feel like anytime someone shows up alongside of me and says it's a race, my body like, transforms completely mm. have yeah. you and ryan discussed your tune-up race not really i'm just listening to him when he says let's find a tune-up race i'll find one i like it well it sounds like you said that you wanted to you had a 5k time trial this weekend and you yeah. were saying i could run maybe five what 510 to 515 pace well if you run 510 pace that's that's about 16 flat right there i think that's what it takes six five oh nine will get you sub 16 that possible to even be right there right now probably i had a really bad one about five days after high rocks and i ran a 1648 and i was like god that's not me so that was three weeks ago so this week should be pretty good i want to be 
I want, he said, start the first one at five twelve, and then decide what you want to do from there. And that's what I'm going to do. Um, Hopefully when you run a five twelve to start, there's a decision to be made, not just a hang on for dear life, which is not a decision at all. <laughs> it's interesting. Like, as I said, my lungs are not feeling it. So when I did the time trial a couple weeks ago, I did a, I think I did, I did a under a five, five, 10, then I did a five eighteen, And then I did a five forty five. It was just like, it was like, okay, I'm gonna slow down a little bit and just be consistent so I can kick this last mile. And then it was like, Poof. and it's my legs, not my lungs. So I just have to really get my legs in shape again. I don't know if you guys know what that feeling's like. I'm sure you guys are both runners, but you just know when all of a sudden your legs match what you want them to do. And then there's other days where you're just like, why aren't you doing anything I ask you to do? 100% of my time, 100% of my time, it's stomach, diaphragm, lungs, not doing what my legs want to do. 100%. Really? Yeah. Mine's legs. Yeah. It, I think it's, all, it's different for different people, I guess. Uh, like I was running with my partner uh, yesterday and Oliver, shout out to you for being my training partner, bro. He was running with me and he was just killing it. And then all of a sudden he got a stomach cramp and he was just dropped back and he, he had to fall back a minute. It was his stomach. I felt nothing. My legs were like the whole time. I was like, God dang, this sucks. I felt like I was tripping all over the place. By the way, super shoes, I don't know if I'm a fan. Yeah. From what, from what perspective? I don't know if I feel necessarily much faster, first of all. And second of all, um, I think about the morality behind it all. Like I fell in love with running and I like running a lot because of how simple it is and how raw yeah. talent it is. There's nothing else besides you. There's no technique. There's no like, oh, I need 10 years to train this, to be skilled enough to compete at it. It's not like tennis wrestling or any of this kind of stuff, even though I love wrestling, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's just show up with a pair of shoes and run. And now they're just starting to science the shoes. And I, it bothers me a little bit. Yeah. I'm not going to not use them because that's what the world's using now to set these records. But at the same time, if I had the choice and I was like an Olympic committee, I'd ban them. Well, that was, that was our take on the super shoe episode we did, which is that no one should be judged for using them, but Kirk and I won't use them unless it was like your life's on the line for a race or you're qualifying for something because otherwise it's a, it's performance, you know, you couldn't hit without them. It's questionable. I don't necessarily know if I feel much faster than them, but maybe I just need to run more consistently and test the two. Well, I have two things about that. The first is, uh, what have you used? Which ones have you used? I'm using these endorphin pros, but they're like the trainer ones. Hold on. Yeah. So you, you have the shift or the speeds then. He just left us folks. In case you're wondering, he does that once in a while when we interview him, doesn't he Bracken? he just, there he is. Yeah. This is the one that I'm using. So this is like their, their trainer version. This is like the retro one. Yeah. So that's either the endorphin shift or the endorphin speed. This is the, this is the endorphin series speed roll. Okay. And so I would say that is the ideal shoe for someone like you. You get that cushion being a 200 pound man, you get the cushion of the crazy foam, but you don't have this outrageously tuned carbon plate to help propel you. So that carbon plate is going to make a big difference. 
It's the difference between that uh, composite plate helping guide your foot and keep it stable to you have no choice but to be propelled forward. It's like a slightly downhill running feeling. Really? I haven't even tested out my real racers. Yeah. Yeah, It's there's a difference. Uh, second thing is that um, in terms of running, the super shoe makes up for deficiencies in what you can do both fitness-wise and form-wise. And the better your form is, in theory, the less percent you get from the shoe. But your thing will be pounding over 26 miles, putting 200 pounds into a pair of shoes over and over and over. So are you suggesting that I take these things and I switch to you doing some of my speed sessions in the real carbon plate ones? Because that's what I plan on racing in. If you're going to race in the carbon plate, I would do some speed sessions and some of your long tempos and long runs in them to make sure that those are the ones you're going to use. Because the uh, the pro version is a much firmer and harsher ride, and it just rolls differently underneath your foot. And so you got to know which one actually works for you. Like this shoe up here, this Alpha Fly here is maybe the greatest marathoning shoe on the market. I don't know if I could wear it for a marathon. Like the middle of my foot gets like it, the way I plant is so different in it. I don't know if I could even make it through a marathon. I'd have to do long runs in it just to find out. So you guys trying to say you're going to race me in this marathon. I might. Kirk, Kirk, why don't you come out here? We'll set up an exhibition mast and you and I will do a 10 miler to a half marathon. Well, if you're putting me up at 5,000 plus feet, then I'm handicapped, but no, okay. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll do sea level one. I'll go on active.com after this. You and I look up doing a 10, mar 10 miler to a half marathon as a prep race and we duke it out. I would love to duke it out. I I'm pretty quick right now, so I got to hold on to this somehow, but yeah, let's, let's what, do it. When are you targeting this? Fall, oh, right? Oh, when's the actual marathon? Berlin, September 28th, October 11th, Chicago, October 17th is Tokyo. If you do Chicago or CIM, I'll do it with you. Me too. Okay. I mean, listen, that makes my choice. That's a great time of year. It doesn't interfere with like the Spartan National Series for me, like the stuff I plan on racing. I'd have plenty of time after West Virginia. I'd have a month and a half to get honed in on the marathon. Sure. I'd commit to that. We'll be your pacing guru. Who's going to pace me there? I'm way out there. You really think you're going to – Kirk, this is serious. Listen, if I know anything about Kirk, he's going to go out really hard and either hang on or blow up. But he's not going to dawdle around six-minute pace to start. Oh, no. My first mile, 549. Second mile, 549. Third mile. By mile 12, I'm going to know if I'm going down to 540s or I'm going to hang on for dear life. That's the plan already. I like. That. I'll run with you at at seven minute pace. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. No, but I mean it. If you do Chicago or CIM, I'll I'll run it with you as long as I can. Let's do it, boys. Hunter, I, Hunter, I was on my phone last night for a half an hour doing math, looking at my current splits, knowing where I need to go. Just because somehow us talking last week and thinking about it got me excited, and so. We could make a real thing out of this, but I'm not going to be able to break any like Clydesdale records or anything. 
No, 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 no. Listen, dude, I, I prefer to have more people along for the ride. And this is not supposed to be some like braggadocious thing. I'd love to race against a friend because that all of a sudden just adds more incentive to crack down. Cause I'm not really racing against anybody. I'm racing in clock in theory, but basically for me, the only reason why I'm keeping it broad across all of those things is right now. I don't know what's going to happen with COVID. Some of these things might get canceled. I don't know what's going to happen with high rocks world championships that could be September, October. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to put a couple pieces together but there's that's like that like three to four week window where I should be primed by then, and you know also I do want to work in in with a marathon who will help support substantiate the claims that I'm making. We've already reached out to Berlin Marathon and they've been receptive. So if like you know one of these guys is like, hey, we'll do this. We'll help connect you with some of this PR. It will help with your charity. We'll help with your cause. We'll help try to get Guinness Book of World Records to pony the fuck up. Um, that kind of stuff. All right. Well, if you really want that race day juice, no matter where you're running, you get Megita out there. Oh, <laughs> I know. Megita, right now, gosh, I wish I could tell you without sounding like a jerk, all how awkward it was racing against him at High Rocks. And I don't know if it's going to continue to be awkward, but I think he he probably has a picture of me on his wall that he throws axes at knives at acid at he, he wants to take me down any way that he can. I think he is primed for it. And I think the best chance he probably has would be in a marathon. He's fast. Yep. He, is. he is, but he has a cramping history. That's what sissies do. <laughs> All right. That's my last question. Then what are you going to do for fueling? Because I doubt you're going to do what you did last time, which is forget everything in the car or at home. That was exciting. Um, right now, I am just testing. I'm testing out um, carbohydrate mixes, and I'm carrying gels with me as I'm going. So I'm doing a lot of research. Like I just watched a little like micro documentary on Chris Froome and how he set this like Giaria record by fueling properly. So I'm doing as much research as I can that I'm probably going to bring about three to four fuel sources into my training and whatever seems to hit the best. Um, I'll probably need to be eating about two to 3000 calories of carbohydrates every single day leading up to it. And it, just in training. And then I'll probably need to be taking down about 300 to 400 grams of carbo uh, or calories of carbohydrates each hour. Uh, probably about a hundred grams of carbs an hour. Hundred grams, two to three hundred calories. Yeah, that math would go to four hundred calories. Four hundred, yeah. If you were doing a hundred grams, yeah. yeah. So that should be it. I'm practicing eating a lot. I'm just constantly bloated and feel like crap. But when it hits, <laughs> I'm fast. I feel like you tell me that two to three times a year. I feel like crap or that I'm bloated. Are you gone again? No. Damn. We're back. We're back. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Listen, I'll end on a high note. I love you guys for having me on. I'm sorry that my internet sucks. Kirk, I'm taking you down. Bracken, I can't wait to see you back in racing. Oh, oh. I don't think so. I think you're in trouble. 
think you're in trouble. I want. I just got one last question for you. Um, uh, as far as like the next month of your life, what that looks like, are you are you just like hunters just bouncing back and forth between Malibu and the the cabin? And following the training plan, you're on the straight and narrow that way? Or is there anything else coming up? I just want to picture your life here over the next month or two. I might have to do some work for High Rocks, but really my ultimate goal is to go to the cabin May 15th and not leave until June 15th. And I'll have a couple training partners there. And if we're doing everything properly, everybody's working out twice a day and we're getting about 50 to 60 miles a week. And we're just primed. We're jacked. We're only training. We're only eating and we're only sleeping. And I'll try to push all of my work off to the side and just come in, crush national championships, and then have the plate clean until the marathon almost. I'm embarrassed. I didn't even ask you. Is 50 to 60 what you're hitting right now? No. Um, 42. 42 about. But that all. And what will you get up to? Or is that just by feel? That's just because like, if I was doing all road, I'd probably be about 50, 55. Since I'm doing mixed mountain and trails, that's why I'm down in the forties. Um, so I still like running in the trails just because it's more exciting, but I bet you I'll be around 80 or 90 by my peak. Mm. So you're going to get up there even with that big boy weight. Oh Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the, that's the devil in the details, dude. Can you eat? Can you run? That's it. Like, you know, and then if you do both, then I should be freaking fast. Are you guys gone again? I just feel embarrassed about my internet connection. Yeah. So for the folks that know, we're on our seventh recording right now of, uh, it's been broken up seven times since. So this sounds smooth to you listening, but it doesn't happen. My last question for you is this. You're getting together with the boys. You're having these training camps, all this stuff. You're also known to enjoy like a drink once in a while and all that stuff. Like, are we are we mixing all ingredients right now? Like, I'm gonna train hard and I'm gonna party hard with my friends in the mountains. Or are you like are you like dialed in and or like how does that look for you? I guess is what my curiosity is. I go sober May 25th until June 26th. And then I'll have two weeks of drinking again. Right now, like last night, it was Cinco de Mayo. I had three margaritas and a steak. Like I'm not crazy. And from there, you know, I'll clean up my act. Um, I'll party for 4th of July and then I'll probably go sober for almost the entire summer leading up to, you know, the marathon. And when I say sober, like I don't want anybody to think that I'm like in my closet drinking whiskey. I'm just talking about clean, high performance training. And I just, I'd rather celebrate my victories rather than drink off my, you know, my daily dolls. You know what I mean? hundred percent. Mm-hmm. All right. I was curious. So you're a little cold turkey. You're either all in or all out. It sounds like when it, when you take a goal seriously, there's your times that have fun, you know, and then there, there's your time to put your, you know, nose to the grindstone. If you call me and you invite me to a bitchin' party, I will crack open all the beer, but for the most part, no one's throwing down like that right now. And I'm holding hard. So it's paying off. And I hope that by the end of this thing, next time we have a recap of what's going on, that we can discuss how good the party was and how good it felt to run at 230. I like that a lot. Me too. You think I can get up to 200 by November? <laughs> you want to? You think it's possible? Yeah. 181 right now. 
buy this um, this mass gainer called Serious Mass and take about two scoops <laughs> of that a day. And um, make sure you just get a you know about three or four full body sessions in a week. You'll be there. Nineteen pounds of solid beefy muscle is doable by November. Yeah, no doubt. If you guys race, I could probably get nineteen pounds of muscle on me faster than I could run this marathon. You're saying in two and a half hours? <laughs> two and a half hours, I could gain nineteen and a half pounds of pure muscle mass. All you need to do is just give me about a two four forty fives and a and a barbell and a bunch of steak. And I'll, I'll be there. But seriously. Right. Well, maybe I have to think about that. Get, if you really want to gain mass, drink raw goat's milk, drink serious mass, mass gainer. And I would say eat as much. Psycho-creatine. Creatine. There's creatine's in the serious mass shake. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> well, is there anything in that serious mass that would get me popped? No, it's, it's by on nutrition. It's, it's, you know, the most vanilla safe company that you can get. Um, it's just easy. It's 1200 grams, uh, 1200 um, calories. And it's like 250 grams of carbohydrates, Jeez. 50 grams of uh, protein. When you drink it afterwards, you like lay in bed and like sweat for a while. But then when you get back out, you're like, it's like that scene from Terminator when he like rises from the ground. You're just like, oh, so <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> I'm in. Dude, get it. I, I want to race you at 200 pounds. You look like a beautiful man at 200. I would, but my head's so small, I would look disproportionate. It's okay. We love the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. Oh, look at that action. A little pit because awesome. you're so excited. All right, boys. I love yeah, you both. I'm over and out. Bye, Hunter. Thank you. Hug and kisses. Mm-hmm.